You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 330th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Dawn had broken shortly after 4.30 a.m. on Wednesday morning, July 1st, 1863, and the first contact between Harry Heath's Confederates and John Buford's Union horsemen came around three hours later, about 7.30 a.m., three miles west of Gettysburg on the Chambersburg Pike. It was just the start of what would prove to be a bitter, day-long fight. Military terminology defines the first day's battle at Gettysburg as a meeting engagement, with units of both armies arriving on the field at different times throughout the day, and, for the most part, entering the action either division by division or brigade by brigade. The fighting began on a series of gently rolling ridgelines west of town, but as the hours passed that Wednesday, additional forces arrived on the scene until, in the fields and woodlots north and west of Gettysburg, the soldiers of four Confederate divisions, two from A.P. Hill's Corps and two from Dick Yule's Corps, had slugged it out with the soldiers of two Federal Corps, the 1st and 11th. Neither army commander had intended for a major battle to break out at the crossroads town of Gettysburg on July 1st. The Confederate commander Robert E. Lee had even instructed his subordinates to avoid serious fighting. With the continued absence of his cavalry chief, Jeb Stuart, with most of the army's veteran horsemen, Lee was entirely ignorant of the whereabouts of the various Union Corps and of the nature of the ground around Gettysburg, and he was seeking to avoid battle until his forces were fully concentrated. The Federal commander, George Meade, had only assumed command three days before the start of the battle. Few Americans have so unexpectedly received as heavy a burden as the command of the Army of the Potomac on June 28, 1863. It was an awesome responsibility. If the Federal Army engaged the Confederate invaders and defeated them, all would probably be well. But another Union defeat, on Northern soil no less, might result in the enemy seizing Baltimore or Philadelphia or even Washington, and could conceivably create a political state of affairs that would lead to an independent confederacy. 
And so, needless to say, when army command was thrust upon Meade in the middle of this ongoing campaign, the situation was critical. Meade's marching orders for the first day of July gave destinations for each of the Army's seven infantry corps. John Reynolds was in command of the left wing of the Army of the Potomac, which was composed of his own 1st Corps, Howard's 11th, and Sickles' 3rd. The 1st was to march to Gettysburg, and the 11th was to follow and stay in supporting distance, with the 3rd trailing along behind and just making Emmitsburg. Slocum's 12th Corps, part of another wing of the army, would also end its day's march within supporting distance, setting up camp at two taverns, four miles southeast of Gettysburg. The other three corps would be farther off, the 2nd at Tawnytown, the 5th at Hanover, and the 6th well to the east at Manchester. Meade directed his generals to leave unnecessary baggage and to march light. He also warned that the enemy's, quote, movements indicate a disposition to advance from Chambersburg to Gettysburg, end quote. And he called for the preparation of three days' rations and distribution of 60 rounds of ammunition per man, sure signs that a battle was drawing near. Still, Meade was not sure when and where he wanted to meet the rebels. Pipe Creek was appealing, but he was open to Reynolds' advice about whether to fight at Gettysburg. Meade's strategy was to seek out good ground and fight a defensive battle, with the intention being to place his army in a position that would compel Lee to attack him. That position, or so he believed, was soon located a few miles south of the Mason-Dixon line, near Tawnytown, Maryland, on high ground overlooking Pipe Creek. Thinking this was an ideal defensive position, Meade had his headquarters staff prepare what came to be known as the Pipe Creek Circular. Sent out early on the morning of July 1st, the Circular instructed the Corps commanders that should they encounter Lee and should Lee attack, they were to fall back to the Pipe Creek position, drawing the Confederates toward it. However, crucially, John Reynolds never received the circular, and so he didn't know that what Meade wanted was a fighting withdrawal to the Pipe Creek line. Having never received the Pipe Creek circular, Reynolds decided to escalate the fighting at Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st, in order to keep the rebels out of Gettysburg for as long as possible and away from the good defensive ground south of town. Reynolds' decision was perfectly in keeping not only with his own temperament and inclination, but also consistent with what he knew at the time about Meade's intention and with the dispositions Meade had made in placing the army in a position to meet a challenge by the enemy. It seems safe to say that in making his decision to escalate the fighting at Gettysburg, John Reynolds wouldn't have doubted for an instant that George Meade would do anything other than fully support him. However, even after he learned that fighting had broken out at Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st, Meade initially remained uncertain as to whether that spot would be a good place for the kind of battle he wanted to fight more uncertain when he learned about midday that John Reynolds was dead. Rather than ride to Gettysburg himself, as Robert E. Lee was even then doing, 
George Meade decided to send another trusted subordinate, 2nd Corps Commander Winfield Scott Hancock. The 39-year-old Hancock was one of the Army of the Potomac's most junior corps commanders. He was outranked by Sickles, Howard, Slocum, 6th Corps Commander John Sedgwick, and, before his death that very morning, Reynolds. But Hancock was forceful, confident, and well-liked by Meade, who ordered him early in the afternoon to ride to Gettysburg, take command of the forces there, including those of his seniors, and decide if Gettysburg was a good place for the army to fight a battle. When last we left the fighting at Gettysburg, we had followed the attacks that elements of Robert Rhodes' Confederate division, part of Dick Yule's corps, had made from Oak Hill. As y'all recall, the brigades of Edward O'Neill, Alfred Iverson, and Junius Daniel had launched attacks on the Federal First Corps line. Though O'Neill and Iverson were repulsed with heavy losses, the fighting had hardly paused as Daniel's large brigade then swept forward. In action that saw more ferocious combat at the railroad cut, Daniel's rebels were twice driven back, but the cost of those attacks had been heavy on both sides, and Daniel sensed he had come tantalizingly close to success. Junius Daniel would display some remarkable doggedness that afternoon, as despite his heavy losses, he prepared for another attack. On the Federal side, after John Reynolds' death, Abner Doubleday had assumed command of the First Corps, and under Doubleday's direction, the men of the Corps were putting up a tenacious defense there in the fields and woodlots west of Gettysburg. For the moment, the Federals here were holding their own, but it wouldn't be long before the tide of battle reversed its bloody course. From atop Hers Ridge, Henry Heath, who had opened the battle on the Confederate side that morning, had watched as Rhodes' attacks from Oak Hill had unfolded. Two of Heath's brigades, those of James Archer and Joe Davis, had been wrecked in the earlier fighting, but Heath still had two fresh brigades that he had kept out of the morning fight, those of John Brockenbrough and Johnston Pettigrew, and now Henry Heath was eager to re-enter the fight especially after noticing that Federal First Corps units were shifting positions to his front in order to meet Rhodes' attacks from Oak Hill. After his disastrous morning probes, Heath was chomping at the bit to get back into the fight, and not at all happy that his men were standing idly by, spectators to the grand drama unfolding before them as Rhodes' brigades swept down from Oak Hill and attacked the Federal First Corps line. Heath appealed twice to Robert E. Lee, who by this time had arrived on Hers Ridge, asking the Army commander for permission to move the men of his division forward and engage the enemy. But Lee, trying to make sense of what was happening, was initially reluctant to commit any more troops to the fighting. When Heath first asked if he should advance, Lee answered with an emphatic no, He wasn't yet prepared for a full-scale battle since the men of James Longstreet's corps weren't yet on the scene. However, it wouldn't be long before Lee changed his mind, deciding it was time to press the attack, and gave orders for Heath 
to advance. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. On the first day of July, Generals Lee and Longstreet had first heard the distant rumble of artillery fire as they rode east over South Mountain by way of Cashtown Pass. As Lee descended the widening eastern arm of the pass, the long, deep-throated booming grew louder and more defined. It was obvious a significant engagement, rather than a fight with some Union cavalry or trifling local home guard troops, was underway. Lee had left Longstreet behind and spurred on toward Cashtown, where he arrived sometime around noon. While most accounts have Lee meeting with the ailing A.P. Hill after Lee's arrival in Cashtown, there are actually no records indicating such a meeting took place, and Hill may have already been up somewhere between Cashtown and Gettysburg. What is certain is that after his arrival in Cashtown, Lee spoke with one of Hill's division commanders, Richard Anderson, and according to Anderson, Lee was visibly disturbed by the uncertainty of the situation. Anderson later said that Lee declared, I cannot think what has become of General Stewart. I ought to have heard from him long before now. He may have met with some disaster, but I hope not. In the absence of reports from him, I am in ignorance as to what we have in front of us here. It may be the whole Federal Army, or it may be only a detachment. If it is the whole Federal force, then we must fight a battle here. Anderson later admitted that Lee, in his worry, seemed to be thinking out loud, and what he said was, quote, more to himself than me. 
end quote. Not long after his conversation with Anderson, such as it was, Lee rode down the Chambersburg Pike toward Gettysburg in search of A.P. Hill. The steady drumming of artillery fire ahead was continued troubling evidence that there was a fight of considerable size going on. When Lee was just west of Knoxland Ridge, he was met by Dick Yule's aide and stepson, Campbell Brown. The young officer later recalled, quote, Troops came up while I was talking with General Lee and passed by toward Gettysburg. After informing Lee of Yule's decision to alter his course that morning and head for Gettysburg instead of Cashtown, Brown was surprised to be asked by the commanding general if Yule had heard anything from Jeb Stuart. When Brown answered in the negative, Lee appeared to grow both anxious and angry. Brown remembered that, quote, This, from a man of Lee's habitual reserve, surprised me at the time. End quote. Lee issued instructions for Dick Yule to make every effort, quote, to open communications with General Stuart, end quote and then dismissed Brown to return to Yule. Needless to say, Jeb Stuart appears to have been much on Robert E. Lee's mind as Lee tried to make sense of what was going on at Gettysburg. Remember, Robert E. Lee had not heard a single word from Stuart since June 25th, and it was at this moment, on July 1st, that Lee began to feel most keenly the absence of his cavalry chief and the three brigades of veteran rebel horsemen that Stuart had taken off on his ride. To be sure, although other Confederate cavalry remained with the Army during the advance into Pennsylvania, Albert Jenkins' brigade with Ewell and White's Comanches with Jubal Early, those horsemen, with regard to both training and temperament, were unsuited to perform the sort of screening and reconnaissance that Stuart and his troopers routinely carried out for the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee would later say that, quote, the movements of the Army preceding the Battle of Gettysburg had been much embarrassed by the absence of cavalry, end quote, by which he, of course, meant the absence of Stuart. And FYI, in this context, embarrassed means hindered or hampered. Well, despite that later statement, Lee, in real time, as his invasion of Pennsylvania was unfolding, had been remarkably lackadaisical about the absence of Stuart and his errant column. It was only now, on July 1st, as the rebel infantry was stumbling into a major engagement with the enemy at Gettysburg, and the Confederate Army commander sensed that events were spinning out of his control, that Robert E. Lee realized the time had come to pay the piper for allowing Stuart to ride off, away from the rest of the army. On July 1st, the rebel infantry, against Lee's wishes, stumbled blindly into serious fighting at Gettysburg because Stuart's absence had deprived Lee of one of the key assets that's essential to any commander, and that's information about the enemy. As British Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig would later write, quote, You would as well let a blind man out without a dog as infantry without some horsemen to attend and reconnoiter for it. Stuart's fateful ride and its negative impact on Lee's operations 
has been one of the most hotly debated topics of the Civil War ever since the unintended collision of the armies at Gettysburg. It's hard to argue against the assertion that if Stuart had been present, the Battle of Gettysburg as we know it would have never happened. Stuart, if he had been present, would have kept tabs on and kept Lee informed about the movements of the Federal Army and Stuart and his horsemen would have provided a screen behind which the Army of Northern Virginia could have concentrated in the Cashtown area as Lee wished. The guns would scarcely fall silent at Gettysburg before the questions and finger-pointing began. Disappointed Southerners refused to believe the Confederacy's premier field commander, Robert E. Lee, could lose a battle, particularly one as important as Gettysburg. Someone else, they felt sure, must be to blame. Even after Lee had said, with much reason, it is all my fault, his devoted supporters inside and outside the army began looking for a convenient scapegoat. They quickly found one in Jeb Stuart. The crux of the issue was Stuart's failure to provide Lee with crucial information about the enemy's troop movements in the days leading up to the clash at Gettysburg. Stuart's detractors claimed it was this lack of accurate intelligence that caused Lee to blunder into a battle he did not seek, on ground he did not choose. It was all Stuart's fault, it was said, for going off on an ill-advised joyride around the Federal Army when Lee needed him close at hand. And so, because of his fateful ride, Jeb Stuart reaped stinging criticism and substantial blame for one of the Confederacy's most stunning battlefield defeats. But as we pointed out over on the members' episodes, where we looked at all of this in some detail, we believe that if there's blame to be assigned for what happened, then we think the fault lies with both Jeb Stuart and Robert E. Lee. For Stuart's part, he conducted his ride around the Federal Army and up into Maryland and Pennsylvania as a grand raid, although his actions actually resulted in no major problems for the Army of the Potomac. Stuart seemed to forget until too late that his primary responsibility was to link up with Yule's Corps in Pennsylvania and to guard Yule's flank and keep tabs on the movement of the Federal Army. Instead, Stuart wasted time and exhausted his men and horses with skirmishes and battles and activities like tearing up railroad track and wrecking telegraph lines or burdening himself with the millstone of the captured wagon train. And then, as for Robert E. Lee, if he had kept Stuart and his veteran cavalry well in hand, he would have known when the Federal Army crossed the Potomac, and he would have been able to concentrate the Army of Northern Virginia in line with his own initiative and plans, rather than commit it piecemeal and with little coordination in reaction to the unexpected proximity of the enemy at Gettysburg. In the end, the buck stops with Robert E. Lee, and we think it was Lee's miscalculation in allowing Stuart to ride off away from the rest of the army that in large part doomed his Pennsylvania campaign and made possible the collision of the opposing armies at Gettysburg.
After his interaction with Dick Yule's aide and stepson, Campbell Brown, Robert E. Lee rode on over Knoxland Ridge, the site of the morning's first skirmishing, and continued on until he reached a slight rise just west of Hers Ridge and north of the Chambersburg Pike. There he met A.P. Hill, who still could provide no more than a sketchy situation report. In Noah Andre Trudeau's book, Gettysburg, A Testing of Courage, he provides the following account of what happened next. Quote, it was around the time when Iverson's brigade was being shredded near Oak Hill that Henry Heath located the two generals. Protocol called for Heath to deliver his report to Hill, but something, the look in Lee's eyes perhaps, or the pallor of Hill's skin, prompted him instead to speak directly to the army commander. Rhodes is very heavily engaged. Had I not better attack? Heath asked. No, Lee replied. I am not prepared to bring on a general engagement today. Longstreet is not up. Meanwhile, Campbell Brown returned to Dick Yule's side and related his conversation with Robert E. Lee, reporting that there were no new orders except those concerning making an effort to locate Jeb Stewart. Brown remembered how not five minutes had then passed before, quote, Major Venable of Jeb Stewart's staff with one courier rode up to let us know where Jeb was. General Yule sent him on to report to General Lee, advising him to send the courier back to hurry up the cavalry. General Yule gave me but a few minutes rest, sending me to look for Jubal early and hurry him up and tell him to attack at once. With Rhodes' attacks from Oak Hill going nowhere, Yule must have wondered if his decision to pitch into the north end of the Union line had been the right one. And then there was the knowledge that Robert E. Lee hadn't even wanted a battle today. But Dick Yule now felt he was too far in to back out, so he sent Brown off to hurry up Early's approaching division and make sure Jubal Early knew he should attack as soon as he arrived on the scene. Meanwhile, after Lee arrived on the battlefield and began to learn more about the situation, he must have very quickly realized he faced a moment of decision. His answer to Heath's request to go back into action had no doubt stemmed from the fact that he, Lee, had just arrived on the scene and knew little of what was going on. But what he did know is that he had not been looking for a battle today, not in any way, shape, or form, but a battle is just what he now had on his hands. Lee could see that while Hill's troops, that is, Heath's and Dorsey Pender's men, were at the moment inactive, just over across the way, Yule was heavily engaged. And thanks to the inactivity of Hill's troops, the Federals seemed to be shifting units from McPherson's Ridge to meet Yule's threat. Lee must have sensed that he was no longer in control of events, and instead he was being controlled by them. Somewhat paradoxically, in order to regain control, he would have to abandon caution and commit more forces to this rapidly unfolding, unlooked-for battle. And so, when Henry Heath returned to give Lee and Hill an update and again request permission to attack, Lee's reply this time, as Heath remembered it, was, quote, Wait a while, and I will send you word when to go in. 
The Confederate commander had made his decision. Here at Gettysburg, in spite of his almost complete lack of information regarding the enemy army, and despite the absence of Longstreet's corps, Robert E. Lee was going to fight the battle that chance had brought him. Hey, y'all. We just wanted to take a minute here at the end of this episode to say thank you for your patience while we took a break from the show and for your continued encouragement and support during the past weeks. We were blown away by all the wonderful notes and comments. Yeah, it was a much-needed break, but we have to admit it feels good to be back in the saddle again, so to speak, and getting a new episode out to you guys. And with this new episode, you might notice things are a bit different here at the end of the show. That's because one thing we did decide during the break is that we aren't going to have a book recommendation with every show any longer. Sometimes that in itself creates stress. So from now on, when we have a book to recommend, we'll do so. But when we don't, we won't. Um, Before we bring the curtain down in this episode, we also wanted to say thank you to everyone for their donations during the break and to all the members of the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon for their continued support. And a big thank you to all of those who became new members during the last couple of months. Your support means the world to us. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time as we continue telling the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.